Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again for giving us the opportunity to be here and, and to be able to discuss and present these topics. And Father, we pray that you would please be with us this morning and that you'd be with me and that you would help me to convey this information in a way that would be beneficial to everyone that's here. I thank you, Father, for this opportunity and I pray asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, I had a chance to meet some of you guys already today. Or, well, not today, but uh, since yesterday. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Michael Treviso. I will be presenting on uh, soil science today. And I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more on some... I, wanted, I know the subject has been discussed quite a bit already in previous uh, ad, agri conventions. And if any of you guys have actually gone on and uh, heard any of the audio that's been put on Audioverse from the last years, you know, this... A lot of what they said was kind of a repetition. Uh, they're really trying to make certain points. Um, I didn't want to just repeat what has already been said. So I will discuss some of those things, but I wanted to kind of get into the cationic ch exchange capacity, soils, and what exactly they are, and kind of give you guys an understanding of what that is, and then we'll talk about balancing nutrition and how we may be able to manage it and how uh, you know, the importance it plays when we actually look at doing soil tests. And then, of course, when you get a soil test done, uh, maybe what type of soil test you want to look for and uh, why you want to look for it. So, <coughs> let's see. There's a couple of other things I want to discuss. I think I talked about ion exchanges in soils. I also want to talk about, um, let's see, different nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur cycles when we start looking at some of the anions and how we ought to consider or what we ought to consider when we want to manage those nutrients because those nutrients aren't held uh, by colloids. They're anions, which means that they cannot be, they're not cations. In other words, they have a, a, a negative charge instead of a positive charge. Therefore, they're not going to be on your soil, soil colloids or they're going to be very There'll be, there is some anion exchange capacity on your colloids in your soil, but it's very insignificant. So we don't really want to focus, or we don't usually focus on that, and we don't really bother testing for that, because the amount that's held is very insignificant. So I'll start with the uh, functions of agricultural soil. So what, what is the purpose of the soil besides uh, you know, walking on it and putting things on it? Uh, let's see, some of the important parts that the plant plays is the fact that it uh, anchors the roots so it's a physical structure a place to you know a foundation for the plant to be of course it supplies water to plants and roots uh, provides air for plants and roots you know 25 well your average pore space is in any soil is 20 is a 50 percent and it's ideal to have 25 percent of your pore or uh, actually 25 percent of that of that 50 percent which is half of that 50 percent uh moisture straight moisture so when we start thinking about moisture content we're, we're talking about the pore space in soil so if we if i say that you're fully saturated that means that 100 percent of your pore space is full of water so that means that that 50 percent is completely full of water that's full saturation and that that's essentially waterlogged uh, that's not a condition you really want to have it's ideal to be at 25% air, 25% uh, water, and then the other 50% being the actual mineralogy in the soil. So 
that's, let's see. Okay, of course, releasing water with low levels of, nutri of nutrients. Now, I'm sure everybody in here is familiar with hydroponics, right? Does anybody not know what hydroponics is? Okay, we all got a, a pretty good grip on what that is. So when we're growing in hydroponic soils, what they do, or not hydroponic soils, I'm sorry, when we're growing in a hydroponic production system, what, what they do is that they take the minerals that normally the soil provides for the plants, and they look for ways to put it into an aqueous, which means water, solution that they can feed to the crop. And essentially, you're spoon feeding your crop. Well, when you're growing in soils, what is referred to as a soil solution is similar to hydroponics in the sense that it is water that has nutrients available to the crop. However, the nutrients that are in that soil solution come from your colloids and also come from your, de uh, your organic matter that's being decomposed and worked on by microorganisms. So those nutrients in the soil are, are applied in a method that is very complex and different than a hydroponic uh, system. So when you're growing in the soils, there are certain mineralogy and certain nutrients that can, you can expect to be there that you cannot expect to find in a hydroponics. Secondly, the soil holds moisture. In hydroponics, you don't usually have that because you're growing in cocoa core or you're growing in beads or some other substrate that has no capacity to hold moisture because the pore spaces are too big. And compared to soils where you have tiny pore spaces that where the water can adhere through the forces of cohesion and adhesion onto, that, onto these small particles of soil and are allowed to be available to the plant throughout different parts of the day through periods of dryness when there's no moisture coming in. So this is why in hydroponics, if the pump breaks, the crop is done. <laughs> so it's, a, it's the challenge in hydroponics. So I spoke about soil air being 25%. Uh, water, oh, of course, of the, of the mineralogy in the soil, that 50%, you want 5% of that typically to be organic matter. And a desirable soil condition would look like this. Uh, there are a few instances uh, in coastal regions, in Alaska as well, where your organic matter is extremely high, maybe 25%, 50% even. And these type of conditions, uh, you know, in fact, the soils where, where, where they uh, harvest uh, phagnum peat moss are typically about 50% to 60% organic matter. I mean, it's just a ton over, of organic matter. And that's usually found, again, in soils that freeze, where that organic matter, or the microbes cannot work on that organic matter and break it down. So you grow, and then you freeze, and then you grow, and you freeze. You get into the deserts, into the tropics, and you have very low organic matter typically in the, surf, in the soil. Because you might have some in the surface, but very little in the actual soil because it's always warm and micro and microactivity is constantly working on that, breaking that down. So you don't have this uh, ability to buffer it. And then, of course, in organic production systems or, or uh, agricultural production systems, sometimes you don't even have 5%. You're lucky if you have 1% or 2% because we plow them and we break that ground down and we push it so hard that we rip everything out of that organic matter and you lose it. So when when they coined the term organic agriculture, the, the reason why they went with the word organic and not some other thing, sustainable or whatever other word, you know, phrase, perhaps hip phrase you could think of, is simply because their focus was on keeping healthy organic matter. They did this through composting and other methods uh, that have become popular over the years, but essentially 
really what they were looking at is how have we traditionally farmed over the last multiple millenniums and uh, how is that different from what we've been doing once machines got involved and as, as well as chemicals and other genetics. Uh, and they use an awful lot of organic matter and they really try to keep no less than 5%. Um, so anyhow, that's where that term came from. I won't really go off more into that. Let's see four parts of soil. Okay, all right. So when we start looking at soil texture, you know, a lot of times I'll talk with farmers and they'll tell me, oh, well, you know, alfalfa really likes to be grown in a silt loam, and this is a clay loam, and that's why my alfalfa doesn't do very well. Well, that's not, <laughs> that's not really a good practice to have, a good idea, because when you start talking about silt loam and clay loam and sandy loam, um, I didn't put a soil triangle in this thing, but anyhow, really, you're just talking about different portions of the soil and, and how much of it is actually clay, silt, and sand. And when we look at this, you know, sand, these are the size of particles from 0.1 to 0.002 inches, which is rather large. So sand is actually a very large particle. It's actually rather heavy. The bigger the particle, the bigger the pore space, which means the bigger the pore space, the lower the, water reten the, lower the uh, moisture retention capacity of that soil is. So this is why sandy soils drain well and don't hold moisture. Well, if we look at silt, you see it's 0 0.002 all the way to um, 0.001 inches. Um, this is considerably smaller, but even smaller yet is clay, which is 0 0.001 inches and below. So it's clay is very, very, very small. And, you know, clay is actually very light compared to, sand, to, to silt or sand, I'm sorry, silt and sand. But the reason why we tend to think as farmers that clay is heavier is because it's so small, it has such tiny spores, uh, pore spaces that the moisture comes in there and it doesn't leave. So the heaviness comes from the water that's in the clay and not the actual clay. So that's how those clay soils are so sticky and you know, heavy, even though the clay is actually light. So here's the soil structure. And uh, when we start looking at, when we start to look at, uh, organic matter and the role it plays. Now we talked about these three, sand, silt, and clay, and it doesn't really matter whether you have sand, silt, or clay. Uh, there's this thing called soil aggregates. And soil aggregates is the icky, gooey stuff in your soil that holds it all together and gives your soil structure. It gives it character. When you pick that soil up and you feel it and, and it, it crumbles nicely on you or it stays together so it doesn't fall apart and get blown by the wind or uh, get washed off through erosion when the rain comes, that is soil aggregates. And soil aggregates comes from decomposing or decomposed organic matter. And that organic matter can be anything from your old dog Skip to you know, your great-great-grandfather to you know, deer that you may have killed or you know, the weeds that were there or anything that was ever alive that has died is organic matter in the soil. Anything, that's any organism whatsoever. So when we look at the organic matter in the soil, and when we, everything that was ever alive, that means that at some point it had the nutrients it needed to be alive. It had the amino acids it needed. It had, if it had bones, it had the calcium and the phosphorus it needed. Whatever that organism had while it was alive, it gives up when it dies. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. From the dust we came to the dust we shall return. Thus saith the Lord. Everything that has ever been alive will return to the soil. So whatever it takes to make something, when it dies, 
mineralization of nutrients is the fancy term that soil scientists use to say the building blocks that once made that living thing are now breaking, coming apart, and are being made available for the next generation of living organisms. Does that make sense? Okay. Wonderful. So, it's in organic matter where we really focus to control our uh, anion exchange capacity, if you will. We don't normally talk or refer to it that way, but essentially, with organic matter, you have different cycles. I'll get into that a little bit later, but a lot of your nutrients, nitrogen in the form of nitrate, uh, phosphorus in the form of orthophosphate, and sulfur in the form of sulfate tend to come from your organic matter. Okay? So when you want to manage those nutrients, you really got to pay attention to your organic matter. And now, not all organic matter is created equal. All right? There's typically three different fractions of organic matter. We refer to them as the stable fraction, the intermediate fraction, and then the active fraction. So I'll start with the active fraction. The active fraction is something that recently died. So that could be grass that you just mowed yesterday. That's your active fraction. It's in the ground. It's dead. It's now decaying. It's rapidly releasing nutrients. The, inter well, the intermediate fraction is in between, of course, the active and the stable. And I'll talk about the stable first because you'll understand intermediate better if I do. So the stable fraction is a portion of the organic matter that we typically refer to as humus. Humates, sometimes referred to, but humus particularly. And that is or complex carbon structures that have been broken down by, by bacteria and fungus and other organisms in the soil such to the point where there's really nothing left of them. And when they get to that point, they develop both anion and cation exchange capacities much the same way the clay in the soil does as well. Now, remember I talked to you about clay being so small. Now, the clay is what actually has the cation exchange capacity. I'll talk a little bit later about clay and what exactly is built up in clay, but clay is ultimately extremely weathered rock. Now, what type of clay you have depends on what type of rock it is that was, it originally was and in what stage of weathering it currently is in. Now, when we soil scientists start to talk about rocks, they tend to say, this rock is 10 billion years old or 500 million years old or whatever exaggerated number they come up with. Now, what you have to understand is that those numbers are kind of like light years, right? If I told you a million light years, you would say, well, the Earth hasn't existed for a million light years. Well, no, but it's a unit of measuring distance, right? So again, these units are really units of measuring weathering. Now, whether that weathering was caused through time and moisture uh, really varies because if you live in the tropics, you're going to get much more weathering than if you live in the desert, right? In less time. So in the desert, you hardly get any precipitation. In some places, you may not get a single drop of rain in an entire year, while in other areas, you're getting 80 to 100 inches of, of annual rainfall. That means you're going to see excessive weathering, right? So if you get 100 inches of annual rainfall, you're going to see 100 years worth of weathering where you would see one year in an area where you get one inch of annual rainfall. Does that make sense? Okay. So, supplying plant nutrients. Now, I talked about mi mi macronutrients and micronutrients. 
so again, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and sulfur. These are your macronutrients. All of these guys right here are extremely important. When we start talking about soil fertility, soil nutrient cycling, crop nutrient uh, management, these guys are the absolute most important. You just bought a farm, maybe. You just started gardening, maybe. Uh, you want to know what to do. The first place to start is get this right. I would add sodium to this, but they tend not to like to do that, and I just took this slide from somewhere else. But me personally, I would add sodium to this, especially in the Pacific Northwest where you have a lot of precipitation. Why? Because sodium washes off quickly, and sodium is a necessary plant nutrient. Micronutrients, you have chlorine, cobalt, copper, iron, manganese, molybdenum, nickel, and zinc. All of those are very important in metabolic processes in a plant. I get asked all the time, I got this pest, or I got that pest, or I got this disease, or I got this other disease. And yesterday I talked a lot about plant pathology and diseases. And folks hit me with questions like, I have this fungus, or I have that fungus. And I was trying to really emphasize the importance of if a certain metabolic uh, action cannot, uh, or metabolic process cannot happen inside of a plant because it's limited by some nutrient, then you set up a condition where you have simple substrate, essentially simple food for simple organisms to consume. And most of your pests and diseases are simple organisms. If they're on your crop, consuming your crop, that means that some metabolic process is being held up due, due to some nutrient deficiency. And usually it's in the micronutrients, but surprisingly, oftentimes it's in the macronutrients. <laughs> so get them both balanced and you'll be all right. I'll continue. So where do plant nutrients come from? I talked about decaying matter. I talked about the weathering of soil. So that's the breaking down of minerals, but also from the additions by humans, commercial fertilizers, manures, lime, and of course, sometimes even industrial pollution. So whatever's coming out of that smokestack down the road, it's most likely on your farm, on your garden. Uh, so it's good to understand what they're doing there, what they're burning. If they're putting out a lot of sulfate, then you probably don't need to amend with sulfur. So you don't know what they're doing. Well, I was just talking with another gentleman that suspects that there's a lot of aluminum coming out of a stack somewhere nearby. So maybe you end up with aluminum toxicity in the soil. I'll talk about what aluminum toxicity does to the soil a little bit later. But anything can come out of that. So recycling plant nutrients is what I refer to as the organic, uh, is what I was referring to when I talked about organic. So these little, uh, you know, creepy guys here, they don't really exist, but they're intended to represent microorganisms. So bacteria, fungus, whatever's in that soil, breaking down that, you know, straw or corn that you grew last year or year before last or 10 years ago, or maybe grandpa grew 40 years ago or 50 years ago, is still in the ground to some extent. And if you have a well-balanced soil, well-balanced mineralogy, you will have a healthy plant or I'm sorry, healthy soil microbiome. And our soil microbiome is a lot like our stomach's microbiome. You see, when we look at the biology of a plant, you won't find digestive organs. When, that's the biggest difference between plants and animal species. Plant species do not have digestive organs. Organi organs, I'm sorry. And plant species, I'm sorry, animal species do. So what, is the di what are the digestive organs organs of the plant, the soil, and the, and the microorganisms in your soil. So if you have a soil that has a microbiology that is completely destroyed, 
It's like having a digestive tract that has a microbiome that is totally destroyed. What do you expect to find in a human being with a digestive tract that is absolutely destroyed? It could be bombarded through all, whatever it is. Chemical intoxications or chemotherapy or whatever it is. You find malnutrition and disease. It's no different than the soil. You fix the soil, you fix the crop. If we fix our diets and our microbiomes, we can repair a tremendous amount, an overwhelming amount of the disease in our constitutional frames. So, of course, the breaking down of soil minerals, you can have acid rain and water. There usually is some level, there's always some level of acid and rain. Um, I don't think I put that slide into this one. But as that acid rain or that acid and that water rains down on these rocks, it leaches out, it weathers away, it takes a minute amount of nutrients that enter into the soil solution and ultimately become available to your crops. So nutrient additions by, by uh, commercial fertilizers, you have uh, usually those forms, th those nutrients are in some sort of form that is available to the crop, but sometimes it's not, it has to be broken down. Um, oftentimes they do dissolve quickly, particularly lime, dissolve slowly as uh, it neutralizes soil acidity and uh, neutralizes the carbonate that's usually associated with that lime, whether it's magnesium or calcium. And, but as they neutralize that acidity, as that carbonate is worked out of there, you get calcium and magnesium in exchange for that. Uh, organic uh, nutrient sources, manure, compost, sewage sludge, biosolids, uh, decay and nutrient release is similar to crop litter. Very similar. So those are some of the benefits you get from uh, manures. The soil solution, uh, again, as I spoke about earlier, is that moisture that we talk about being in the soil. Uh, sometimes uh, soil water is complex, a solution that contains many types of nutrients, other trace elements, complex organic molecules. Uh, you have anything from your main three that they like to give a lot of credit to, as well as all your macro and micronutrients are in that soil solution. So I want to talk about absorption now because I'm going to try to get into cation exchange capacity. It's not the intent for me to really focus on organic matter. I, I talked about quite a bit about that last year, I think in uh, a series titled, What Are Soils? So I would like to really share with you what adsorption is, which refers to the absorption is essentially what cations in the soil and humus in the soil does. It doesn't absorb, it adsorbs. Does, it, you, does anybody not know the difference? I'm going to guess there's a few of you that do, that <laughs> don't, <laughs> or maybe most of the room. So the difference between adsorption and absorption is, absorption is when, you act, when it actually consumes something. Like, I can sit next to this guy, but I could never absorb him. I would have to, like, eat him or something to absorb him. It's to put him inside of me, make him part of me, is to absorb to adsorb is to put next to me. So if I come over here and I grab him and I hold him on tight so he can't get away from me, that's adsorption. It's right next to it. So these nutrients are not absorbed. In other words, they don't become part of the, of the colloid or the humus. They're just held like a magnet next to these. Uh, nutrients are held like a magnet next to the colloids and the humus in the soil. Let's see. Um, so when we... Yes, they're actually dipole bonds. They're weak bonds, weak ionic bonds that hold it together. Um, okay, the surface area of clay. Remember I talked about how small clay is. 
So if we were to get a quarter cup of pure clay, this could be bentonite clay, Mount Marillonite clay, vermiculite clay, uh, whatever that is, there's enough surface area in a quarter cup to equal the surface area of a football field. That's how much surface area is on clay. It is tremendous. <laughs> so oftentimes we really underestimate how, how, how large that area is. And because there's so much area around clay, that gives it the, the properties of absorption to hold on to these nutrients, as well as water. So I think I have some pictures in here of what clay looks like, but these are actually cartoon images. So when we look at clay, they tend to be sheets put together with little gaps in between them. And these sheets here are supposed to, kind of like the sheets in a battery or something else, they're supposed to represent what clay looks like. And let's see. And, and they are, you know, like I said, they are stacked together like sheets of paper. And of course, they all have negative charges on it. Sometimes you do get some anionic, some positive charges on the side, but they tend to be very few and very little. And that's where you would get a little bit of anion exchange capacity. But again, like I said, it's not usually given any respect because it's so insignificant. It's not enough to really nourish your crop. These negative charges that are on this clay, they absolutely have to be balanced by some positive charge. All right. So in this example here, we're pretending that these are all different cations, nutrients that are adsorbed to that clay. So if you can imagine that this is your soil or a particle of clay in your garden or in your farm, what nutrients are absorbed to that clay are represented here by calcium, magnesium, potassium, ammonium is also another one, uh, sodium, copper, aluminum, hydrogen, etc. will absorb onto these clay colloids and neutralize that negative charge it has. Humus, or organic matter, like I spoke about a moment ago, has the same property, except you know, it doesn't really look like this, these scribbles you see. It's just that they come in so many different complex shapes and sizes, but they're all very small, that the only way that we can really try to you know, convey what it looks like is to just put a bunch of squiggles on there, because it's just so complex. You know, unlike the clay, the clay is very uniform. I mean, you can, you can tell one from the next. But either way, in the same way, you have these charges on the side. And in this example here, with a low a pH of 4 to 5, and the soil that's very acidic, you have a lot of hydrogen ions held on to that humus. And in this example, with the neutral pH, you have essentially almost no hydrogen, very little hydrogen, and you have a lot of plant nutrients on there which could be different cations like calcium, magnesium, etc. And of course, this is on your organic matter. You can have the same situation with your clay and the combination of both of those and their ability to hold on to nutrients is what we refer to as cation exchange capacity. Okay, so in the past, we've talked, other folks have talked about that, but for you to really get an understanding of what that is, I really wanted to show you this image so you could see that what your soil has some ability to hold nutrients no matter where you are. And here in the Pacific, in the Willamette Valley, soils around here tend to have anywhere from 25 all the way up to 40 uh, millimoles per 100 grams of soil. And that's a pretty high exchange capacity. You go to other parts, uh, eastern Oregon, maybe 10, maybe 5. 
You go down to some of the weathered soils in the south, it could be as little as three or four. They're very weathered and they have very little exchange capacity, especially in sandy soils. So an important thing to note is that the way we number these, or the way that we try to quantify how many, how much, or how many or how much nutrients can be held onto these colloids and onto this humus is by uh, counting the, well, I'm sorry. Yes, by counting the, uh, the anions or the negative sites on it. So some very important plant nutrients are anions. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead of here. So some, very plant uh, some plant nutrients are anions, like I said, nitrate, phosphate, sulfate, and of course chloride is also a plant nutrient. And uh, these soils are able to retain the anions, but it varies, and it's, again, it's very insignificant. So phosphate retention oftentimes happens in the soil. Uh, to, you can, here's another issue as well. I, I'll cover this, but phosphate oftentimes is excessively applied in soils. And when we apply excessive amounts of phosphorus, it can complex with aluminum, which drives pH, but also it reacts with these colloids, forming ionic bonds, and essentially, which can never be broken again, and essentially it, it reduces your cation exchange capacity in your soil and you can never get that back. So it's very, very interesting. So some folks have really, some farms have really beat up their soils by excessive phosphate fertilizers. I believe I spoke about this a little. But uh, when you do this, you can also get aluminum reactions, aluminum phosphate solids. And aluminum, I'll speak about, really drives acidity. Even though it has a three plus charge, and you would think it's a cation, because it's such a small molecule with such a high charge, it actually breaks the bonds of water and will take the hydroxides, will break a hydrogen off, take that hydroxide, two of them, and hold on to them real tight and releasing the hydrogen out. That's how it increases the pH of your soil, or I'm sorry, decreases the pH of your soil, increases the acidity in your soil. So if you're getting a lot of aluminum in your soil, that can drive your pH down big time. And this particular example, phosphate retention in soil absorption on oxide surfaces, which in iron oxide, but this is typically only in heavily weathered soils. Oregon is unique in that it has all of the 12 soils, uh, different soil series, which means that it has everything from extremely weathered all the way to uh, frozen glacier soils that are frozen year round. Uh, and everything in between that. It has every type of soil series you could ever want to look at is in Oregon. So if you go to the coast of Oregon, you can find very, very weathered soils that mimic the soils of the tropics or the soils of the south. You can find very rich humus or very rich mullock soils that are rich in humus that are very fertile in the valleys. You can find rock soils in the mountains and I mean, it's, it's, it's all here for the looking. If you're from here, I encourage you to look into that because you can find that just about anywhere in here. But these types of iron oxides tend to be in, in, in the uh, coastal regions and in areas where you see uh, excessive rain. And that is where you can form phosphate retention in soil through these complexes onto your colloids. So I spoke about that. So, all right, now, they have the capacity to hold these nutrients, right? Uh, so I'll talk a little bit later on calculating exactly how you can try to figure out 
how much of this is in your soil and what these numbers mean. When you take a, uh, your soil to be tested into a laboratory, they will usually tell you what your cation exchange capacity is, your CEC. You look at this number, you don't know what it means. It's a very important number as, long, uh, as well as the numbers associated with base saturation, nutrient management, and decisions that you should make on uh, applying certain fertilizers and nutrients to your crop. But for now, what I want to talk about is these clays, how, how do they get to the plant root? I'm sorry, these nutrients on these clays and on this humus, how do they exchange into the plant root? And the intermediary between the two is what we, what we refer to as uh, the soil solution. And remember, I talked about this is something similar to like hydroponic growing, where what you have is a number of nutrients in the soil here that usually directly represent whatever is on your colloids, which is here, and your humus. So when we look at the plant roots, they can't, I mean, the plant root, this is probably even too large for what a plant root actually is, the actual size of the plant root, even the root hairs, uh, in comparison to the clay. But it's just for, you know, image, uh, you know, for give you guys an image of what it really looks like, a visual image. However, that moisture, that water that's in your soil, that moisture represents, or that soil solution rep and the nutrients in it represent what is on this colloid because there is diffusion and there is exchange of nutrients based upon what's there. So I'll give you an example. If you've got a base saturation of calcium of about 86, you should have about 120 parts per million in your soil solution with an electron conductivity of one. That's kind of, thank you. That's kind of, uh, I guess if you don't know a lot of other information, it's kind of useless information. But what I'm trying to compose, or, or the point I'm trying to get across is that it directly reflects that. Then potassium, you only need about a four or five percent maybe even a 6% base saturation at the highest to get that same 120 parts per million in the soil solution. In other words, to get an equivalent amount of calcium to potassium in your soil solution, you need an extremely higher portion of your base saturation to be calcium in order to achieve that. And if you, have, if you don't have that, you tend to develop these imbalances in your soil solution, which ultimately will lead to imbalances in the nutrient in the plant, and you get a sick plant. Does that make sense? But, okay, so I want you guys to understand that it's very important that we understand these balances. Now, you may not find literature that's going to tell you, well, you will, but you'll go to some places and you won't. However, if you look at the literature that talks about growing in hydroponic solutions, and this is not a new thing. The Netherlands have pioneered this. The Canadians are doing it. They're growing tremendous amounts of products. They're sending it to us over here. In my opinion, it's a lousy crop, but whatever. They, they, they can grow it. They, they send a lot of it here. Um, it's flavorless and tasteless, and we all eat it, and we don't know the difference most of the time. However, they have done this so much that they can tell you exactly how you ought to balance the nutrition in hydroponic solutions. And what they're trying to do is to mimic the natural soil solution. And they'll tell you plain as day, if your potassium to calcium, calcium ratios go above one, you start to develop blossom end rot. If it goes above three, every single tomato will have blossom end rot on every single flower, on every single tomato, on every single bell pepper and watermelon or whatever you're growing. You're not going to get the calcium in the crop. It blocks it. I could keep going and talking about magnesium. If your magnesium gets too high, again, you end up with imbalances. It's, it's not... It's not con conspiracy, folks. I mean, it, it's out there. The science, it's out there. The problem is, is that 
it, it oftentimes it gets lost in the translation. Folks just don't understand what they're reading. Very, very few people bother to go out and study the science of the soil. It surprises me. When I was attending Oregon State University, they were, every year they would, ask, they would send a survey into my email inbox asking the students to answer these surveys to try to figure out why students were not enrolling in agricultural programs in the United States. Even our universities, our secular universities, are understanding that there is a serious problem where our entire populace in the United States are not interested in agricultural endeavors. So it's not that the information is not out there. It's that nobody is really bothering to go out there. And the fact that you're here today trying to learn this, you're already ahead of 99% of the population in the United States. And I could almost go as far as saying you're ahead of 99% of the population in the Adventist church who should know better. So it's very, very interesting that very few people are going down the road to understand this science. But it is there, folks. Now, if you dump excessive amounts of nutrients, which does happen, and this is actually the case in a lot of your arid soils where you have salts built up. Now, what do I mean by salts? I'm not talking about sodium. I'm not talking about table salt. I'm talking about salts. A metal with a that means, exactly, any metal bonded to a non-metal. Salts. It could be calcium. It could be calcium. It could be potassium. It could be chlorine. It could be carbonates, sulfates. It could be anything. Some of the more common ones, of course, are sodium and chlorine. Yes, we all know that salt. Other salts that can form in the soil are calcium sulfate, which we also call gypsum. That's how you end up with gypsum in the surface of your soils. If you're in the desert, oftentimes it rains. When the rain dries, there's this white thing that kind of looks like snow, but it's not snow. It's gypsum that precipitates out of the soil and comes up. It's very interesting. But that comes from excessive salts. In other words, you have so many, so many cations in your soil, it has no colloid to get onto, and it's just sitting in the soil solution dissolved. And when the temperature goes up or the sun comes out, the moisture goes away and the bonds form and you have these crystals on the surface. And when you have those types of salts, you end up getting, get, throwing osmotic pressures, uh, get out of whack, your plant cannot really bring these nutrients in, and you have problems. So these are the challenges you see in arid soils. Okay, I'm getting towards the end of the first hour here. So, all right, I think I've opened the box here on uh, cation exchange capacity in soils. And... I think I covered all these topics, right? Okay, of course, another important subject that I did not say, uh, I did not speak on or touch on is absorbed nutrients are not prone to loss in drainage water. This is extremely important because if you are in an area like Oregon or the Pacific Northwest where you get a tremendous amount of precipitation, what keeps those nutrients in the soil is cation exchange capacity, the fact that they are absorbed onto that colloid and that humus. So if you add, like I showed in this picture here, you add excessive nutrients in an area where you have a lot of rainfall, what you end up is wash, washing these guys off into your creeks and streams and rivers and water tables and contaminating those. So that's, the, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to understand what is your cation exchange capacity and when you should add something and like, it essentially tells you what's too much and what's not enough. How do you know? If you're to cook a pot, if, you're to, if I ask you to cook a, a stew for potluck, but I don't tell you how big the pot is, how do you know how much water to put in there? 
How do you know when it's too much? You don't know. You could add too much water, maybe you don't put enough. Maybe you put too many potatoes in it, maybe you didn't put enough. You gotta know how big the pot is, then you can decide how much of each ingredient you need to put into the pot. This is the same theory with balancing soils and cation exchange capacity. So I will take, stop there and break for questions. Okay, the question was, are minerals uh, absorbed through passive or active transport? And it's both. Yes, the question is both. And um, I'll talk about the importance of mineral balancing because just like our bodies, if we have mineral imbalances, we cannot absorb and we, we cannot as readily absorb or release. We cannot absorb nutrients and release toxins the way we should. The cell, at the cellular level, right? The Ideal Soil Handbook. This is the book. I'm going to go through some of the calculations that are in this book in the last couple of hours. This is the, where I started. This is a, a good starter. If you really don't know what you're doing, start with this one. Once you get this down, then start picking up some of these. Because these are going to go above and beyond what this book talks about. This is very introduction, uh, introductory level. So if you're at that level, start here. So I'll repeat the question for the sake of audio verse. He said that uh, he had a snow over the winter. The snow melted down, and then it left a puddle that eventually froze. Yeah, it was like a lake. It was a little a lake that froze, and then eventually that went away, <laughs> and you had a red powder on the surface. I would jump to the con if I had to just jump to a conclusion, I'd say it was iron, but I forget. There's another mineral that oftentimes is red, and I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, but typically it's iron. And I don't know where you're from, but it, it could be iron, but it could also be. It, it could be too. If it's a salt, then it's probably iron, but if it's not a salt, then it could be a bacteria. However, if it was a bacteria, it probably would die and eventually just disappear. If it's a salt, it's going to stick around mostly, unless the wind blows it away. So the question is about hydroponics. Um, you know, you can, it seems to work for a lot of people. So he doesn't believe in it, so why do people do it? Uh, as an actual grower, I can tell you it's, e it's easier. They don't, people do hydroponics because they don't know how to make that work right. <sighs> Unfortunately, we live in a world where Satan is largely under control. He's the ultimate conspirator. It's very important to Satan to keep us sick. And the way he does that is by keeping us ignorant. Uh, so, I know f just f from my own experience that in a lot of the large secular universities, even Oregon State, they, a lot of the funding comes from big corporations. DuPont, Monsanto, you know, Pioneer, etc., etc., these big corporations are the ones that shows up with big pocketbooks and drop millions of dollars onto these schools and tell them, we want you to study this, and we want you to study that. So the moment they study something that could tell a farmer how not to buy their chemicals, suddenly somebody shows up saying, you're going to lose your funding elsewhere if you don't stop. And I know for a fact that this happens. I've seen it and I've heard about it and I've talked with people who have are professionals at that level that tell me, yes, I cannot, I have to tell you William Albrecht doesn't work. However, when I use it, it works. He says that it looks good and healthy, but looks are deceiving. You know, it's a, health, it's a healthy looking sick plant. 
It's really all it is. That's why I say a lot of these hydroponic growers, uh, like I was saying yesterday, there's some of these facilities that are several hundred acres in size, and you know something will break out, and the plants have no way to defend themselves, and they'll wipe out the whole crop. I mean, acres after acres after acres, and that costs millions and millions of dollars. However, the reason why they practice that is largely because it's it's a real how do I it's a science that is really I don't know I, I want to use a term that you perhaps you don't understand but I mean block and squared in other words they can produce an SOP a standard operating procedure give it to this guy you know you'll work for $15 an hour here's the SOP go grow tomatoes when I get somebody that knows how to do it right, he's going to say, no, you know what? I got a wife and kids. I, I, I need to make a little bit more than $15 an hour. Uh, well, they don't want to hire those people. And a lot of these farms that are big like that are actually big corporate farms. And you don't understand the name behind the name behind the name. Who owns that farm is another farm that owns another farm that got farms all over the world. So that's what's taking over agriculture right now. Um, Giant monopolies are being formed in every single industry, and agriculture is no different. We are at a point in the Earth's history where the majority of our agriculture, our, our agricultural products that you go into the store and buy, are being purchased by, I'm sorry, are being produced by corporations. Big conglomerate corporations that are buying out mom and pop farms all over the country. They bought out a whole bunch of farms all over the gorge, throughout the Willamette Valley, throughout the Midwest and anywhere where there's fertile fertile land you know the old man gets old the kids don't want to farm they leave they run off into the city as soon as mom and dad die they sell the farm to the highest bidder the highest bidder is always going to be the corporate guy the guy that works for a living and sweats for a living can never afford to walk in there and buy this million or two or five million dollar farm whatever it is so what happens is that all your agriculture, all your big farms are going into big corporations. Corporations are feeding us now and farming for us now and developing the seeds and developing the chemicals and controlling the science. It's not a conspiracy. It's a fact. All you have to do is just start looking at the stickers. You notice no matter what grocery store you go to, it's the same company making the same plant, putting you on the same dog food diet that you've been on for a long time. And that's why you're sick. If you, you know, the only way to get around this, you know, is to start growing yourself. You don't, you know, the Lord's not calling every single one of us to be a farmer. Uh, maybe he's calling you. I pray that he is. But he is, he has asked us to get out of the cities and to get in areas where we can grow our own food. Over and over again, we're told to do this. And a large part of the reason why is because it's the only way we'll get nutritious food. Secondly, as the statement says, that's not the quote I was looking for. I gave you the wrong one. I'm sorry. I was looking for a quote in Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, page 305, talking about monopolies being formed in the last days. And then she gets specifically, will lead to starvation and civil war in the cities of America, Russia, China, and India. She's essentially telling us, you'll get to the point where monopolies are going to control your food. They're going to tell you what you're going to pay for it, and they're going to tell you how much you're going to get paid for growing it. So right now, 2000, January of 2019, our government is shut down because we want to build a wall to prohibit immigrants to come into this country to work on our farms. We're rounding up our farms 
uh, farm hands, I'm sorry, deporting them. Secondly, we're putting tariffs that prohibit the export of the only two agricultural commodities we still have in this country that pay us anything, which is the dairy and the corn, the soybean, etc. Those commodities are the only ones that pay us anymore, and they're the only farmers that really survive anymore because the vegetable farmers have been put out of business by the cheap labor coming out of Latin America, which produces produce that comes into the United States with zero tariffs. Should we be charging tariffs? I believe we should, but on the right products. Notice, they never brought up putting tariffs on produce. Right? We put tariffs on cars, on aluminum, on steel, all this other stuff coming from China and Mexico, but did they put tariffs on the produce that's coming into this country? Do you realize that more than 50% of the food you eat is not grown in the United States? It's grown in undeveloped nations with no regulations on labor that paid next to nothing. What's going to happen when the, I don't know, we call it Spanish Spring or Latin Spring, kind of like the Arab Spring happens, and they say, you know what? We're not growing food for white men anymore. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if the new president of Mexico who is in the Socialist Party and making friends with Hugo Ch uh, Maduro in Venezuela and Raul Castro in Cuba and Putin in Russia decides we're closing the border and you're not getting anything. You realize half our food comes from Mexico? What are you going to do? Or Peru or south of it? What are we going to do? I hope you have taken heed here. Last day events, page 99 and moved and done what the Lord has asked you to do so you won't be partaking in the food riots that are coming. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.